I'm Jake Watson, and this is a special episode of the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we take stories and characters from church history and immerse you in their world. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. Did he have the golden plates or not? In the minds of thousands throughout the world, many have questioned and wondered, did Joseph Smith actually receive a set of gold-colored plates from an angel or not? Of course, this wasn't a new question. It's one that even those who eventually saw and handled the plates were initially plagued by. So, Martin, did you hear about that Joe Smith kid and his golden Bible? Martin Harris knew and thought highly of the young Joseph Smith. His farm was not but a couple of miles from the Smith family farm near the Palmyra-Manchester border. But Martin hadn't yet heard anything about this gold Bible business. Martin's brother preserved Harris, related to him what he'd heard. A fantastical story of an angel and buried treasure in the form of a golden book. The money diggers probably dug up an old brass kettle or something of the kind, Martin replied, thinking no more of it, until the following day when his thoughts were once again solicited on the matter by a group of men in the village. Still largely ignorant on the subject, Martin replied, The scripture says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is foolishness unto him. I do not wish to make myself a fool. I don't know anything about it. What is it about Joe's gold Bible? Well, listen here, one of the men said. Joseph's old man himself told us the story. Of course, we put whiskey into the old man's cider and got him half drunk, but then he told us all about it. Once again, Martin gave audience to the hearsay. How do you know that he has not got such gold plates? Martin challenged. Their reply would sum up the thoughts of unbelievers for the next 200 years. Damn him, angels appear to men in this enlightened age. Damn him, he ought to be tarred and feathered for telling such a damn lie. Suppose he had told a lie. Martin retorted. As old Tom Jefferson said, it did not matter to him whether a man believed in one God or twenty. Did not rob his pocket, nor break his shins. What is it to us if he has told a lie? He has to answer for it if he has lied. If you should tar and feather all the liars, you would soon be out of funds to purchase the material. After the encounter, Martin silently concluded that he'd get to the bottom of this gold Bible business. This is something besides smoke, he thought. There's some fire at the bottom of it. But life in 1827 was a busy one, and Joseph was ready for Martin's visit before Martin was. A day or so before Martin planned to speak to Joseph, Joseph's mother, Lucy, called at the Harris home. Hoping for an audience with Martin, again, Martin listened to the story of the plates. Martin, my son was hoping you might be able to pay him a visit, Lucy said. Martin's labors kept him from attending to the request at that time, but he did acquiesce to sending his wife and his daughter to spend most of the day with the Smiths. Upon their return, Martin inquired about the plates. The plates were being kept in a box, and they had not been permitted to see them, but they were allowed to heft the box. They were about as much as I could lift, Martin's daughter remarked. They were very heavy. Of course, hefting a heavy load was not enough to win Martin's belief. 
A couple of days later, Martin himself visited the Smith home. Joseph Jr. wasn't home, which Martin was glad for, for that gave him the opportunity to talk with Joseph's wife and family about the plates. He purposefully talked with them separately to see if their stories agreed, and they did. When Joseph came home, Martin did not wish him to know that he had been talking with his family. So he took Joseph by the arm and led him away from the rest and requested him to tell his story. Joseph proceeded to do so and added, The angel told me to quit the company of the money diggers because there were wicked men among them. I must have no more to do with them. I was told not to lie, swear, or steal. I was also told to peer into the ancient spectacles found alongside the golden plates. The angel said that through them, he'd show me the man that would assist me in this work. I looked into them and saw you, Martin Harris. This final detail came as a surprise to Martin, and his skepticism once again came shining through. If it is the devil's work, I will have nothing to do with it. But if it is the Lord's, you can have all the money necessary to bring it before the world, Joseph. We know that the devil is to have great power in the latter days to deceive, if possible, the very elect. And I don't know that you are one of the elect. Now you must not blame me for not taking your word. If the Lord will show me that it is his work, you can have all the money you want. Like his wife and daughter before him, Martin was allowed to heft the box containing the plates. They certainly were heavy, and Martin deduced that the box contained either lead or gold, though he knew Joseph didn't have enough credit to buy so much lead. Martin left the Smith home at about 11 o'clock with plenty to think about. Once he got home, Martin asked God to enlighten him concerning his experience with Joseph. Martin promised God that if this was really his work, and if he could somehow show that to Martin, Martin would put forth his best ability to bring that work before the world. The Spirit of God spoke to Martin's soul, revealing to him that this indeed was the work of God. And for now, that was good enough for Martin. He committed himself to helping Joseph translate the Book of Mormon, but completing the work in Palmyra was quickly becoming out of the question. Enemies repeatedly attempted to discover and steal the plates, and it became clear that Joseph and Emma would need a change of scenery. Martin helped them financially move to a home on the property of Emma's parents in Harmony, Pennsylvania. There, Emma and Martin worked as Joseph's scribes as he translated the plates. Joseph accomplished the translation by use of the Urim and Thummim, which they referred to as interpreters, along with Joseph's own brown seer stone. Joseph placed either the interpreters or the seer stone in a hat, pressed his face into the hat to block out extraneous light, and read aloud the English words that appeared on the instrument. As Emma was frequently in close proximity to the plates, understandably, people later sought her knowledge on the subject. In 1879, an interviewer posed the question, Are you sure that he had the plates at the time you were writing for him? Emma replied, The plates often lay on the table without any attempt at concealment, wrapped in a small linen tablecloth, which I had often given to him to fold them in. I once felt of the plates as they lay on the table, tracing their outline and their shape. They seemed to be pliable like thick paper and would rustle with a metallic sound when the edges were moved by the thumb, as one does sometimes thumb the edges of a book. 
The interviewer probed further. Could not Joseph have dictated the Book of Mormon to you, Oliver Cowdery, and the others who wrote for him after having first written it or having first read it out of some book? Joseph Smith could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, Emma said, let alone dictating a book like the Book of Mormon. And though I was an active participant in the scenes that transpired and was present during the translation of the plates and had cognizance of things as they transpired, it is marvelous to me, a marvel and a wonder, as much so as to anyone else. I should suppose that you would have uncovered the plates and examined them? I did not attempt to handle the plates, other than I have told you, nor uncover them to look at them. I was satisfied that it was the word of God, and therefore did not feel it to be necessary to do so. Now came a question from Emma's later husband, Major Lewis C. Bitteman. Did Mr. Smith forbid your examining the plates? I do not think he did, Emma replied. I knew that he had them and was not specially curious about them. I moved them from place to place on the table as it was necessary in doing my work. Okay, this interview is fascinating. If Emma's words here are to be trusted, they raise some interesting questions. If Joseph was a fraud, what was Emma interacting with so often on their table? What was wrapped in linen? And if Joseph didn't actually have the plates, why would he leave a set of fakes out on the table, wrapped only in cloth? All it would have taken was one quick peek from Emma for Joseph's conspiracy to unfold. Unless, of course, Emma was in on the conspiracy, which raises its own unique set of hard-to-answer questions. Sometimes, when Martin and Joseph grew weary from continual translation, they would take a stroll down to the serene Susquehanna River near the Smith's Harmony home. Joseph stretched his legs along the north bank of the river's greenish-blue water. Martin bent over and scooped up a handful of rocks and began tossing them into the river. Joseph did the same, but just before letting yet another stone fly, Martin paused. This stone seemed familiar. This very much resembles the stone Joseph uses for translating, Martin thought. Soon, Martin had hatched a plan. Later that day, Martin watched earnestly as Joseph sat down to continue with the translation of the Book of Mormon. As per usual, Joseph brought his hat close to his face, peering into the seer stone contained inside. The prophet remained silent. He was unusually and intently gazing into the darkness, no traces of the usual sentences appearing. Martin? Joseph exclaimed. What's the matter? All is as dark as Egypt. The expression on Martin's face quickly clued Joseph into what had just taken place. Martin, you've switched out my stone for a fake. Why? To stop the mouths of fools, Martin replied who have told me that you've merely memorized the sentences you read to me. But despite Martin's cross-examination, despite his inquisitorial tricks, and even despite the spiritual witnesses he'd received that the golden plates were real, the sense of relief he expressed after finally being able to see the plates with his own two eyes on that fateful day in May 1829 is readily apparent. On that same day in 1829, two other men were also permitted to see the plates for the first time, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer. 
Oliver, a distant cousin of Joseph Jr., was a school teacher boarding at the Smith family home in Palmyra when he first heard about Joseph Jr.'s Golden Plates story. Oliver's manners were easy and gentlemanly. He was polite, dignified, yet courteous. He had an open countenance, high forehead, dark brown eyes, Roman nose, clenched lips, and prominent lower jaw. He shaved smooth and was neat and cleanly in person. He was light of stature, about five feet five inches high, and had a loose, easy walk. His association with others was marked by the great amount of information his conversation conveyed and the beauty of his musical voice. He was modest and reserved, never spoke ill of anyone, never complained. By this time, word of Joseph Smith's golden plates had permeated every corner of Palmyra. On one occasion, Oliver found himself discussing the merits of Joseph's story with a friend named David Whitmer. David lived about 30 miles away in Fayette, New York, but was in Palmyra on business. I don't reckon the story merits much attention, David said. I suspect it's only the idle gossip of the neighborhood. Uh, I'm not so sure. I'm somewhat familiar with the Smith family, Oliver replied. I believe there must be some truth to the story. At the very least, I do intend to investigate the matter. David thought little on the subject until it came up once again in a conversation with several Palmyra men. Oh, indeed. Joe Smith certainly has those golden plates, one of the men asserted. In fact, Joe himself had promised to share them with us, he said, doing little to suppress the enmity layering his voice. How do you know that Joe Smith has the plates? David asked. We saw the place in the hill that he took them out of, just as he described it to us before he obtained them. The positivity with which these men spoke was strong enough to give David pause. Maybe, David thought, maybe there is some foundation to these stories. Intrigued by the story of the golden plates and having learned that Joseph was in need of a scribe for his translation project, the 22-year-old Oliver Cowdery traveled to Harmony, Pennsylvania to meet Joseph. He stopped in Fayette on his way for a brief word with David. As soon as I find anything out about these plates, either truth or untruth, I'll let you know. Oliver promised before continuing on his hundred-mile journey. Oliver arrived and met Joseph for the first time on April 5th, 1829, just before sunset. Two days later, Oliver commenced to write the Book of Mormon. They were days never to be forgotten. To sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven awakened the utmost gratitude of Oliver's bosom. Day after day, he continued, uninterrupted, to write from Joseph's mouth, as Joseph translated with the Urim and Thummim. Oliver was true to his word and sent David periodic updates on his investigation. David, I have become convinced that Smith has the records. David, contained in this letter are a few lines of the translation of the Book of Mormon. I know of a certainty that the Book of Mormon is an ancient historical record. In turn, David showed these letters to his parents, brothers, and sisters. But soon, persecution in harmony compelled Joseph and Oliver to find a new place to finish the translation of the Book of Mormon. The Whitmer home became that safe haven. David Whitmer had four brothers, Christian, Jacob, John, and Peter Jr. 
as well as two sisters, Catherine and Elizabeth Ann. In 1829, David, John, Peter Jr., and Elizabeth Ann were still living at home with their parents, Peter and Mary Whitmer. The other siblings lived nearby with their spouses. With the addition of Joseph, Oliver, and later Emma, the already large Whitmer family had grown to be almost too much for the woman of the house, David's mother, Mary Whitmer. The sun hung heavy on the horizon as Mary Whitmer walked towards the family barn to milk the cows. It had been another long day accommodating their guests on top of all of her usual daily tasks. Sometimes when Joseph and Oliver grew tired of translating the Book of Mormon, they'd skip rocks on the pond near the Whitmer home. Mary let out a tired sigh at the thought. They might just as well carry me a bucket of water or chop a bit of wood as to skate rocks on a pond, she thought. Her exasperation grew to the point where she began to consider ordering them out of their home. Suddenly, a short, heavy-set, gray-haired man carrying a package approached her. At first, she was a little afraid of him, but when he spoke to her in a kind, friendly tone and began to explain to her the nature of the work which was going on in her house, she was filled with inexpressible joy and satisfaction. My name is Moroni, the man said. You have become pretty tired with all the extra work you have to do. The Lord has given me permission to show you this record. He then untied his knapsack and showed Mary a bundle of plates. He then turned the leaves of the book of plates over, leaf after leaf, and also showed her the engravings upon them. Mary, be patient and faithful in bearing this burden a little longer. If you prove faithful, you will be blessed. And with that, the man simply vanished, along with the plates. In June 1829, the translation was complete, and the time had come for a Book of Mormon prophecy to be fulfilled. Three witnesses would be permitted to see the plates. Joseph knelt with Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer in a grove near the Whitmer home. Joseph began to pray, pleading for the promised witness of the plates. After Joseph's prayer, each of the three men also prayed, but nothing happened. Again, Joseph, followed by the others, offered a prayer. Again, nothing. Perhaps I should withdraw from the rest of you, Martin said. My presence is the cause of us not obtaining the witness. Exactly why Martin thought himself to be the impediment would be lost to the annals of history. Martin stood up and left the group, walking a considerable distance into the woods. Once more, Joseph, Oliver, and David knelt in prayer. Minutes later, the men noticed an exceedingly bright light appear above them in the air. An angel materialized before them. In his hands were the golden plates. He turned over the leaves one by one for the trio, who marveled at the engravings contained thereon. A voice from heaven above penetrated the glorious light. These plates have been revealed by the power of God, and they have been translated by the power of God. The translation of them which you have seen is correct, and I command you to bear record of what you now see and hear. Then the vision was closed at once. Exactly as it came, even so did the sight disappear. Leaving Oliver and David to their thoughts, Joseph set out to find Martin. Joseph found him fervently engaged in prayer. Joseph, Martin said, 
I have not yet prevailed with the Lord. Please join me in prayer that I might also receive a witness of the plates. Joseph acquiesced, but before they finished praying, the same vision which had recently closed to David and Oliver opened to Joseph and Martin. Joseph heard Martin cry out in an ecstasy of joy. Tis enough, tis enough. Mine eyes have beheld, mine eyes have beheld. Martin jumped to his feet shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And praising God. Thank you again for joining us for a special episode of the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we take historical characters and stories and immerse you in their world. Special thanks to David Snell for being the researcher and writer of this episode, The Witnesses Part One.